Rising Champions, a podcast about the mental side of sports, featuring inspirational interviews with young rising athletes about their quest to win their personal championships. Hosted by Dr. Jason Vetsky of Champion Mindset Group, alongside radio personality Kyle Bogie. Another awesome uh, edition of the Rising Champions podcast. Kyle Bogie, Dr. Jason Novetsky of the Champion Mindset Group here with you. And we have a Stanley Cup champion joining us here on the Rising Champions podcast. Doc, the guests just keep getting better and better, it seems. Well, that's fun to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, Mike Hartman is joining us. And uh, I have the honor and privilege of uh, growing up near Mike and uh, being on the same sheet of ice with him a couple times. Uh, he was a couple years older than me. Well, still is a couple years older than me. And uh, his name, he was like a local celebrity. I mean, everybody knew who Mike was. He was a uh, up and coming, great rising star, uh, hockey player, uh, good athlete all around, played some baseball as well as he'll mention. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing what he has to say about the mental side and leadership and things of that nature. Well, and really, you know, something that, that just struck me about him is it seems that he got every ounce of success out of his athletic ability, out of his, his body, his mind, his approach, you know, playing 400 games in the NHL. And you'll hear what his original, uh, you know, goal was and, and plan was when he first started, uh, you know, his career in the league. But uh, fascinating, you know, is some of the conversation that we will have with him. We'll get to that interview uh, in just a couple of minutes, but it, it does bring up the the conversation of, you know, athletes go from being most likely the star at the high school level to being the star, you know, potentially at the college level. And then maybe they get to the pros and that's when they fizzle out for some, they get to the college level and that's when, you know, these athletes potentially fizzle out or have to play more of a, a secondary role or a minor role in, in whatever sport that they may play. And I mean, when you talk about sports, it's, it can be a game of egos. You know, there are a lot of people, you know, you work your butts off and you've had great success and your parents are telling you that you're the greatest player that they've ever seen. And there can be almost this false sense of, of who you are and the, you know, the type of player that you may be. And there are so many athletes who have to accept and understand what their ceiling is, what their limitations are and how they can fit into a specific role to help their college team, professional team, whatever it may be. And I, I got to believe that that can be an uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. And I'm wondering, I don't know if you're having it with some of the high school students or college athletes that you're working with, Doc, but that's something where, okay, maybe things aren't working out in a big way that you wanted, but you have to find other ways to make an impact and be a positive on your team. Yeah, well said, Kyle. And it, that does those conversations do happen uh, quite frequently uh, with my clients. They have some inflated self views, if you will, and sometimes that's their own fault. Sometimes that is uh, a parent or a coach issue as well. But I think it's important, and Mike nails it in the interview as we'll hear that you have to find your lane. You have to find what you're special at or what you're good at, and maximize that. Not to let the rest of your game go but you really got to maximize your special gifts and talents and develop those into what I call skills. And so you take those talents that you have and you multiply it by deliberate effort and practice. And then you then earn those skills and then you keep doing that over and over until you have something that others can't match. And if you accept that, that this is what I'm good at and this is as far as I can take it, 
it's a much healthier way to live and play. Well, it's interesting too that, you know, and you hear this all the time. It's a cliche in sports. I dealt with it in my, you know, previous career where they would talk about a specific player and they would go, you know, he's really good at a lot of things or she's really good at a lot of things, but they're just not great at anything, you know? And, yeah. and that sometimes is how people determine whether or not uh, they're a star player, whether or not they're worth the money, whether or not they want to draft them or trade for them or, or whatever it may be. And I'm reminded of a, a conversation that I had with, with Darren McCarty, actually the former Red Wing, ironically enough. And he told me, you know, very early on, one of his minor league hockey coaches told him, you know, look, you need to be great at something. And I'll just say this, you're a really good fighter. Okay. So, you know, maybe that's your niche. Maybe that's your way, you know, to potentially get to the league and last. And so Darren ended up taking that to heart where he was going to be a bruiser. He was going to be an intimidator and he was going to go out and try to win as many fights as humanly possible at the junior level. And then of course, once he ended up getting to the NHL and he ended up developing the other skills of being a guy who could be dependable scoring, scoring the puck, be a guy who could be dependable, you know, perhaps on the penalty kill, scoring some shorthanded goals. He crafted his own role, became great at one specific thing, being that group bruiser, grind line, you know, type of player, and then ended up coming full circle and, and becoming all of these other things and adding a skill set over the years. I, that to me is just, it's remarkable when an athlete's able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great example and somebody local that we can all, uh, you know, kind of feel because we, we saw it. We saw it develop in, right in front of us when he came up as a fighter and be, but became a reliable goal scorer and scored some really important goals for the Red Wings during the playoffs and Stanley Cup runs as well. And I think you'll hear Mike talk about the same thing that, you know, he started to realize that he was probably a better defensive player, even though he was a forward than anything else. And so that's what he worked on really hard uh, to stay in the league. So uh, I think everything he says today, you'll hear on the podcast that um, our young rising champions need to really listen in closely and, and understand their own limitations, but maximize their unique skill sets. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's amazing how many examples come to mind when you talk about guys who played one specific role, but also impacted the game in other areas. Bruce Bowen, uh, the mm -hmm. former Spurs small forward yep. who won how many NBA championships was their defensive stopper. He annoys me to this day, um, was frustrating as can be, but was brilliant at what he did. And uh, honestly, you take Bruce Bowen out to a pickup game and I don't, I don't know that he dominates and he's scoring 45 points, but for that specific San Antonio Spurs team and organization at that time, they had a massive need for somebody like that. And he proved it day in and day out and worked his butt off and made it happen. And I mean, we could be here all night talking about examples like that. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. comes to mind. I mean, you meant, I think of Dennis Rodman, I think of Vinnie Johnson, I, I think of, you know, the six man kind of thing in basketball or a penalty kill specialist in hockey. I mean, but those are the guys that accepted their role and maximized their, it to their full potential. There's no doubt. All right. Well, without further ado, uh, we don't need to babble anymore. We can get to a, a great conversation uh, with a Stanley Cup champion and a guy who is trying to certainly implore leadership and, you know, try to get young people and young athletes specifically to continue to grow uh, and expand, uh, you know, their skill set. So uh, without further ado, let's just go ahead and get to him. Mike Hartman with us here on the Rising Champions podcast. 
All right, so Mike, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in here on something that uh, you know really intrigues me before we really get to the meat, I guess, of this interview. But you had the the opportunity to hoist what is probably considered, and I would certainly agree with, being the very best trophy in all of sports, the Stanley Cup back in 93-94. So many people don't ever get to have that feeling, don't ever get to you know stand atop that mountain. So I guess – you know, we'll start there. What was that feeling like to be able to hoist such a historic trophy, uh, you know, as somebody who has spent, you know, a long career in hockey? Well, it was great. It, it was really a dream come true, you know, looking back at it. But, you know, the way I look at it was if you look at that team back then, I was like a very small piece to a big puzzle. So the neat thing about that team is they had guys like Mark Messier, Glenn Anderson, Kevin Lowe, a bunch of these names that you may recognize, Esatikin and, you know, with, like I said, we like with McTavish and all of these players that I try to emulate as a young athlete, as a kid who I looked up to. And then on the other side of it, we had guys like Greg Gilbert that won a Stanley Cup. So a lot of our players have been there before, not just once, but as many as six times. And I was like a very small piece to a big puzzle. Uh, if somebody got hurt, I was going to play more. But I, I learned a lot, and it was really just an honor to be around great people. That's a, amazing. I've always wondered what it would feel like to hoist a trophy like that. I mean, I mean, <laughs> Detroit is such a big hockey town, as we all know. And, you know, Mike, you come from here, and we're super honored and excited to have you on the Rising Champions podcast today. So first and foremost, I think it's important for – to allow you to let us know what you're doing now, you know, post hockey, what, what's been going on in your life and uh, you know, how are you helping others achieve that dream that, that you were able to achieve as well? Yeah. Well, I, I raised my kids in Charlotte. I have two, uh, two kids, they're not really kids anymore, but they're always your kids. Like they're 26 and 22. My daughter's a writer. She went to NYU uh, you know, and she now does writing for, for many different companies and she, she's doing well. And my son's going to UNCC here in Charlotte. And I kept my place here and I lived in New York the last three years and did a lot of work with the Rangers alumni, but I still kept my leadership business. So I worked leadership and the whole purpose was just helping out young people, helping businesses, doing the leadership, like I said, within the businesses, uh, within young athletes and just helping them become their personal and professional best. That was my, always been a passion I had. Right. So I was doing some research on your website, as I mentioned to you, and I came across a couple of concepts that from a psychological standpoint and the work I do with athletes really struck an accord with me in a positive way. And these two concepts that were brought up were something called having your own sports worldview and having your own self view. And the descriptions on your website were to me spot on, but I think it'd be really great to hear from you. How do you use those concepts when you're helping develop athletes? Yeah, so I just go, I'll, I'll turn the clock back. So I, I worked with this Dr. David Medford, uh, similar degrees to like yourself. Uh, and he, this is going back years, he was with the University of Tennessee, and I, and I got a certification called axiology, which is a values-based certification. And we talked about the three views. It was the, they talked about the, the self-view, and how do you look at yourself from the outside world looking in? And then there's a world view. That's the, that's the, the view of how do you see yourself? So, so you look at the, it's, it's really like, I'm not trying to make it complicated, but it used to be the intrinsic mm. and, and the extrinsic, like your emotions and your feelings from the inside. And how do you react if you're nervous under pressure? And then 
you know, the extrinsic and how do you look at yourself from the outside world looking in? So if somebody's watching you, um, how are you going to progress? How are you going to play as an athlete? How are you going to feel? So we, we made it easier and we call it the worldview and the, the self view. And I use those within athletes because you have to really understand yourself. And if you didn't believe in yourself, if you don't believe in yourself, nobody will. Hmm. I have a philosophy. So, so we use those two and it's just, it's common. We've used them for many years, about 16 different years. So really the internal and external worlds is, is how we look at it. Now, from a, a confidence standpoint, I think that's a, a really, you know, interesting point that you just brought up about, you know, if you don't believe in yourself, I'm, I mean, how are you really, how are you ever going to be able to get things done? And Doc, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this uh, on, on the podcast before. I had a coach, I think it was a, the JV basketball team and, you know, I, my confidence was down and I just, you know, could, couldn't figure it out. And I asked him, I'm like, you know, where do you find confidence? You know, where do you have to get it? And he, he looked over at the bleachers and he pointed and he's like, I don't know. It might be under there. You know, go, why don't you go look and see, you know, your confidence might be over there. In other words, you just, you know, you got to figure it out and just go out there and make plays and, and not be afraid. So I guess from a confidence standpoint, what, what do you preach? What do you teach? And, and how do you go about imploring someone to believe in themselves that maybe doesn't? Well, you have to take a look at yourself. And, and I mentioned right on my website that everybody's unique in their own way. So if you look at a, at a baseball team, which Doc has a better background of how many players are on a team. But I'll take the example <laughs> of a hockey team. You have, let's say you have 20 players, you have 20 different personalities, and you're dealing with everybody's different, but we're all unique. So you have to maximize what I call as your properties, like maximize what you do well. Am I ever going to be your in Detroit? Am I going to be a Steve Eiserman? No. So I realize as a player that I have to be the best defensive player. And I had to study it. I had to know everything about it. And I had to be an expert in that area. And I used like a Derek Jeter. And he just didn't get confidence one day. He went out and he he's another Michigan boy, as we know. But he took many, many, many ground balls. And he practiced. And he kept, you know, doing all these little things and details that made him confident in what he did. So if I was going to be told, okay, Mike, this game, you're going to be an offensive player for the New York Rangers – I don't know if I would have that confidence level as a Mark Messier, but if they say, Mike, your role is to play really smart defensively, to play on the defensive side of the puck, to shut down Wayne Gretzky tonight, make sure you know we keep him to the outside. I've been practicing that so many years, and I call it repetition. So repetition's been my best friend, and I know they have the outliers. You do think 10,000 times. I don't know really the whole – how true that is. But what I do know is for me that I practice something to be as perfect as I could at it as a player. So I tell it, whoever that is, if you're a young athlete, work on something, always work on all of your skills, but I always believe you have to be really good at one thing and believe that you can be the best at it. That's such a, an amazing point to make. And, you know, I know Mike, in your work, you do a lot of assessing with people and help them understand their strengths and weaknesses and then match that up to the goals that they probably have for themselves. But I think that's an important message for our younger athletes to understand is be realistic, be challenged, but be realistic in your own abilities and then maximize those abilities. And I think what you just said too leads into the concept that I often talk about is deliberate practice, like really understanding what needs the most work and invest, and I use that word on purpose, invest the most times on doing those things. So you invested 
on becoming a really good defensive player and you knew your role, you understood it, you accepted it, which made you successful and stay in the league. Right. So I tell a lot of our young players, it's a game and it's, there's so many different pieces to the puzzle within that team. And you may have been a great, you know this, uh, you, you were a great high school baseball player and you had a certain role and you were great at it. But by the time you get to college, there's so many players that are so good at that role that you have to take everything you can. And I realized as a player and I tell every young player, listen, if you're, if you're a great skater, be even a better skater, but still work on all of your skills. But it's important that you focus in on really what, what you're good at and be the best at it. And there's players that play in, 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 in every different level, even if it's, uh, you know, AAA hockey in Michigan. I know you work with a lot of players or if it's in the pros and you have to accept your role. I love the, I call it the underdog and I love the underdogs. Uh, you know, if I, when I watch the, the New York Yankees, I'm a big Yankee fan. I hope they don't get mad at me in Detroit. And they had this kid Ford, Mike Ford got called up. He went to Princeton and his family was there. And he's, you know, he doesn't really fit the mold of a New York Yankee. If you look at him, uh, he's, a, you know, not, you know, you see these guys and he looks like a young guy that just got called up. You saw the smile on his face and he maximized everything he could. He showed up with a good attitude. So I tell a lot of our young players, Hey, if you play one shift, be the best one shift player. If you play one inning, be the best one inning player. And you can only control what you can control. And you can't control what the coaches could do. That's right. We talk about that all the time. See, it, that has to be a really difficult conversation, though, especially when you're talking about athletes. Because, you know, whatever level you're coming from, you know, whether it be middle school, high school, and then into college and all that, you, you're probably the best player on your team. You know, most of these, you know, guys, girls, you know, whatever it may be, you're the best. And it's got to be a humbling thing when you have somebody who comes from a great experience and they're the star. And then you tell them, well, you might have bigger aspirations, but in reality, you're going to be the sixth man on this team, or you're going to be a third liner on this team, or you're going to be a utility player in baseball on this team. That's not an easy pill to swallow for a lot of people who have prided themselves on confidence in playing that sport, you know, for a long time. And that's so true. So the, the, the catcher for the New York Yankees, uh, when he came in, he would barely play. But when he came in, he had that good energy and he did well. And you would think, boy, he did well enough that he could have stayed in the lineup. But sometimes coaches think at that high level, well, this is the best I can get from him. And we have to play our top guys. <laughs> and they had, Car I think he's playing for the Tigers now, Carmine, right? Is he a catcher for the? Romine? Yeah, Romine. Romine. Yeah, Romine. Yeah, yeah. I love that guy. So, so I watched him a little bit with the Yankees. And every time he came in, he did well. Now I don't know if he's getting a shot. I haven't followed it as much, uh, obviously, with everything shut down in the last year but I don't know if he how much he played but when he was with the the Yankees he he would spot duty but he came in and, and he had that great energy he was ready he looked prepared and I think that's one thing that we have to do is how to prepare for you know for a game how to prepare for practice and you don't just do it when you get to the stadium I could tell you probably a guy like Romine he he mentally prepared himself he he did all of these little things so knowing that if he's going to be in the lineup that he was going to do everything he can to add and contribute to his team so I'm going to build on that what you just said about being mentally prepared and, and I want to bring it back to your career in, in the NHL as well uh, you and I talked a little while ago uh, you know to get caught up before this interview but I think it's really interesting to hear from you on 
what experiences did you have in terms of mental preparation or of coaching uh, in terms of the mental side of the game at that point in the NHL? Well, I knew going into, like, say, the Buffalo Sabres, I was 19 years old, and I had one dream in my mind, so I approached it differently. Uh, my, my dream was to play one game in the NHL. Mm-hmm. So I went, to, I went to Canada to play hockey, I gave up my college eligibility, because at that time, I thought I was really better than what I was. But once I got there, it was really an eye you know, you really wake up and you say, wow, these Canadian boys from Ontario are pretty good. <laughs> and they're big and strong. They're farmers. And they're just like, wow, I wasn't, I wasn't mentally prepared. And doc, I needed somebody like you. I needed you in my corner, even back then to say, okay, Mike, this is what you need to do. But I didn't have anybody. And I wish, and I wish I did, but I, I ended up learning and there we had team psychologists, uh, later on, especially with the Buffalo Sabres. But I learned, I learned by watching a lot of film. I learned by doing things back in the 80s, like imagery mm-hmm. and breathing techniques and not getting myself worked up. And I did some self-talk. And the one self-talk I did was, it was like before my first exhibition ever, I said, you know what, this is a dream and you have nothing to lose. Now, if I would have went into it saying, oh, I have to do this and I have to play great, I have to make the team, I said, I I, I had these little measurable goals like, okay, one game in the NHL. And I finally played my first league game against the Montreal Canadiens. And it was a dream. Okay, so now I'm going to break it up in another five game increments. Okay, I want to be here five more games. And I was living out of the hotel at that time. And then until Scotty Bowman told me I can get my own place. And I took every game like it was a dream. I I was uh, humbled. I looked up. I I roomed with Mike Foligno, who's a former player. you know, Red Wing, and we became really good friends. He'd have me over for Thanksgiving. So I looked at it more as, okay, I have to challenge myself. I watched how these guys acted as a pro, and I learned by watching some of these really good people, not just players. They're just really good, great people that I've learned in Buffalo from. And just to share a quick thing, I ended up, my, my idol growing up was Clark Gillies. Now, he played for the Islanders. And as a kid, I played for the Oak Park Islanders. And I wore a jersey <laughs> when too. I was nine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the funny thing is I played, I played uh, you know, this guy was many years older than me. And he won Stanley Cups. And I ruined him in Montreal. And it's funny, I said to him, I said, hey, Clarky, you know, you're a hero of mine growing up. He says, just go to sleep and don't talk in your sleep. You know, we had separate. <laughs> <laughs> And I was more of a fan than anything else. And I've always tried to, to do that. I never lost sight of it. Uh, and then I got the end of my career. They wanted me to be a player coach in the minors and a captain of, of an American League team. And we won a championship there. And I just said, okay, it doesn't matter what level I am. I still have to give 100%. And even if I feel like I have 60%, I still have to give 100% of that 60%. Yeah. You don't feel good all the time. So that was my, my philosophy going in. You know, it's really fascinating you mentioned, you know, your perspective of that first game and it was a dream, it was a goal achieved. And then, you know, you also mentioned how you went and coached afterward too. So you got to see other guys coming up that are making the leap to the to the next level. And so I'm really interested in your perspective on this thought is I often work with guys that are doing that thing. They're moving up, whether it's in the minor leagues in baseball or, you know, juniors and so on in hockey. And oftentimes there's that pressure that once they get there, they feel like they have to be more or they have to do something special. And that's usually when they get into trouble. They start pressing, they start getting tight. And, and here's my philosophy, and I wanna, I'm really curious on yours. I always remind them, look, you got there because 
of who you are and what you've been doing. You don't have to change. You'll adapt to the speed and the, the game at the next level, but just remember that you got there because of who you are and what you've done. So I'm really curious if that was your approach and how do you see that with other kids moving up the ranks? No, that's exactly true. So I got there, I, I got there that way by, by just, you know, working hard. And then when you get there, you realize, oh, do they really like you? And you start getting insecure because the coaches will walk by you. They play little games. They may not talk to you. They may treat you differently. And then if you have a bad game, they won't look at you. And I could tell you some funny stories one day you would laugh, like a Scotty Bowman, a couple Scotty Bowman stories as a young guy and what he you know what he did and I even had it on my, my podcast a couple times like he intimidated me then you lose you mentioned it earlier you start losing that confidence yeah but you have to remember like you said okay what got me here and one guy said to me he says just remember don't get too comfortable because as <laughs> fast as it gets good it gets bad just as quick and then the second year when I was playing for the Sabres he goes don't forget it's, a, it's 60 miles from Buffalo to Rochester, but 120 miles back. <laughs> so I always thought about that. And it made me think, oh, wow. Like, and I go, wait a sec here, 60 miles. And, but you, you have to always realize that they like you and you have to be positive. But you always have to remember the hardest thing, and I'm sure you might deal with this with some of your, with, with some of your players and clients, that then you start reading, oh, the, the team just drafted a player in your position in the first round. And then they had, oh, this guy, oh, they just signed a free agent out of the uh, University of Michigan. Oh, great. Oh, they just got, they just made a trade in the summer. Then you really start thinking and you start, you know, playing, you know, those little mental the mind uh, games, yeah. Mind games with yourself. And that's why I needed you, Jace, Dr. Jason. Here. I, I'm not kidding. I could have used you, but we were afraid to go to the team psychologist back then because we were afraid what might be said. That's why it's so I, – I recommend – I mean, if you're an athlete, I would jump on it. I'm not trying to sell you, promote you, but I know how good you are, and I would recommend that everybody listen to you because it's going to help them progress in, in their career. And they have to invest in themselves, invest in their career, and do everything from training – to doing, to listening to their coaches, to having somebody like you in their corner to say, listen, let's figure this out. We need a roadmap. So I know it's really important that with what you do. Appreciate that. Well, it's fascinating too. We, we talk about adversity a lot, you know, on the podcast and fighting through things. And, you know, you talked about your, your battles with confidence and, you know, the ups and the downs and, you know, the coaches intimidating you and all of that. And, you know, more and more so these days, athletes are prone to I don't want to say give up, but look for the easier route, look for a way to go away, go somewhere else, transfer, whatever it might be. And you see so many success stories of guys who do stick it out, guys who hang in, guys who fight through it. And then at the end of their career, they end up flourishing. And I think that benefits athletes so much more, you know, clearly in their final year, but beyond athletics, you know, in their, you know, working career, I think that's huge to fight through things like that. I, I agree with you. I, I, I agree with you 100%. You, you have to fight through things like that. And the grass isn't greener on the other side. A lot of us think, okay, so I, I played in several different organizations, and I was in Buffalo, and it's a smaller market town. I actually loved it there. And, and towards the end, now they have some other guys coming in, like Matt Barnaby and Rob Ray, other left-wingers oh, yeah. that play physical. And they, now, they're, you know, now they're not playing me as much, and I, and I was a regular player, played in the playoffs. Now I sat out a game against Montreal, and you start saying, well, I think I want to go somewhere else. But I learned that the grass is not greener anywhere else. It's the same, 
thing, especially in New York. It's not green there because it's all brick. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, and sometimes you could be in a situation, you have to be in the right situation. I, I do believe there's a little luck involved because if I would have been drafted at 19 by a powerhouse team, let's say it was like the Red Wings and they, they won Stanley Cups, how are you going to fit in that lineup? Or if you're a shortstop and you get drafted by the Yankees uh, 10, 15 years ago, how are you going to take Jeter's spot? Like, how, It's tough. It's a real tough uh, thing to do. So you always have to realize the grass isn't greener and make the best of every situation where you are and don't burn bridges and don't bring any negativity to the team. Yeah. Well, Mike, I would be remiss if we didn't ask you to tell a story maybe about your up-and-coming moves uh, into hockey. And I know you mentioned a great story that has some Detroit connections to it. I think our audience would be very entertained by this story. I know I was. Well, it was a, it was a special thanks to, to Mr. De, uh, Jimmy Davilano. And back in the old days, my father took pictures from the Red Wings. So he would see my father and say, hey, Mike's rated in the first three rounds. This was in the beginning. This was early before the season started. They had the central scouting rating. Oh, he's going to be in the first three rounds. Then he would see my father and say, well, he's kind of struggling. He's looking now more in the fifth and sixth round. And then he would see him, well, I'm not sure. I think he's going to be in the seventh or eighth. And then he told my father, I don't think he's going to get drafted. And my father called me and said, you know, you, you better pick it up. And I just didn't have a good year. It was my own fault. Like I said, and I don't want to be redundant, but I, I needed you back back then. So it was after the draft. I did not get drafted. And uh, it was a year Wendell Clark went first overall. I was not drafted. I was rated, but not drafted. And I figured out, okay, I think I want to quit. And I'm sure you might hear that. And thank goodness I didn't. But I got a call from Jimmy Devilano. And he says, hey, Mike, I want you to come down to Joe Louis Arena. I want to talk to you. So I, well, I got excited. I called my mother, uh, called my father, said, hey, Jimmy Devilano wants to see me. So I get down to Joe Louis Arena and we're having lunch. And he says, you know why I'm bringing you here today? And I said, well, to give me a tryout? And he laughed. He goes, no, quite the opposite. He says, first of all, I can't give you a tryout because the way the rules are, you're in a development league, unless you're drafted uh, to the Detroit Red Wings, you know, we can only bring you in when you're 20 or if you're from Europe, then we can bring you in. It's, it's just the way that the rules were with the league. But I'm here to tell you what I think can help you as a player. I said, okay. And he says, here's a pen and piece of paper. You never show up uh, at a meeting without a pen and piece of paper. So I didn't have one in my hand. You know, I'm 18 years old and not thinking I show up with nothing in my hand. He goes, here's a pad and write this down. And he says, uh, number one, uh, you're not the biggest guy. I said, okay. He goes, write that down. Number two, you're not the fastest guy. Number three, you're a smart hockey player, but you don't do anything really well. Number four, we, you know, you're a tough guy, but you're not a real tough guy. We have guys in our bring it up like this guy named Joey Koser and Bob Probert and they're real <laughs> tough guys you think? And, we have, and we have Lane Lambert you know Lane Lambert's a tough guy he plays like you but you don't do anything well but if I want you to if you follow the Detroit Red Wings training program if you work on having seven shots on net from anywhere all different angles don't worry where it is even from the corner and but make sure you don't shoot the puck that goes around the boards and gets out but play smart <laughs> Play on the defensive side of the puck. Don't go looking for a fight. You're not a fighter, but use your body. Let people come to you. So you not necessarily go hit a Steve Eiserman, but go play physical and people will come to you. And he gave me a whole list of a plan. He said, if you follow my plan, I will give you a tryout when you're 20 years old. I said, well, 
Thank you, Mr. Devilano. He goes, I, that's my word. My word is everything. He goes, you're a Detroit boy. You're a nice kid. I'm going to give you a trial. So I went home. I started running. I started following his plan. That next year I got drafted because he created a plan for me. And I'll go back to you. If I had you in the beginning and you had a plan for me, it would be great. So that's why I do what I do is because I needed that plan an action plan. Because if you ask any kid today, I ask every kid, so hey, what is your plan? And well, my plan is to uh, play uh, junior hockey in the USHL. My plan is, to, oh, go to college and maybe get drafted. That, that's the dream. Well, that's not really, that's a great vision, goal, and dream. But I had somebody really sit down and give me a map of a what I needed. A process. So that's, that's the story. And I have no. a, a good baseball story too, if a quick one. Sure. And I was playing for Please. the Rangers because you're a Detroit guy. I was playing for the Rangers and uh, we just lost a game and we're in Madison Square Garden and uh, played a lot that night. And I know after the game, Eddie Olchuk came in. He wasn't dressed and said, somebody wants to see you outside. I said, my family's not here. Just tell them to wait. He goes, go outside. So I go outside and there's this short guy. And he, you know, not a big guy. And, he, and I said, oh, hey, I'll tell you who he is in a second. I, I shake his hand. I said, hey, great to meet you. He said, I just want to say hi. He said, my son's a hockey fan. And I said, oh, let me get you a stick. I get him a stick. I get him a puck. And I said, I just can't believe you're here. I'm a big baseball fan. I'm from, you know, being from Detroit. He says, yeah, you're a Detroit kid. That's why I wanted to, you know, meet my son. It was Alan Trammell. Ah. And he, so he sent me as bad as ball, you know, some stuff. And I called my father. I said, the weirdest thing happened. I said, we used to be that kid in Detroit that wait for all the Tigers after the game because I love baseball. I always wanted to be a baseball player. And the funniest thing was Alan Trammell's waiting for me in New York. And then he sent me <laughs> some balls and a bat. And, you know, that to me was like a big deal when I was. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing story. How tides have turned, right? The tables are yeah. totally turned. Well, Mike. That uh, is incredible. We, yeah, we really appreciate you having you on. Um, please tell us a little bit how people can get in touch with you, um, you know, through your website or social media and, and what that would take and what it's all about. Yeah, but really, they just, it's, it's, it's hartman.academy, no.com. And if they want to go to the website, there's just information there. Um, I'm going to tell people to stick with you on the, on the sports <laughs> side of thing. But I, I do a lot of leadership work. And if anybody's, you know, looking for that, uh, and, and we have a, you know, we, we have a podcast there as well, but uh, Hartman.academy is where I can, but I'm going to say, you know, you got one of the best around. And uh, so I would say, you know, he's right here, uh, right in front of us. So I appreciate that very yeah. much. Likewise. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. Yeah. Great chatting with you. And uh, we'll certainly be in touch uh, and following everything that you're doing. Thanks again. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Rising Champions podcast. Please subscribe and join us again next week for another episode.